Before we begin with this week's episode, we would just like to say a big thank you to everyone that listened to Nordic True Crime and for all the support and kind messages we have received on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or from our Patreon members. It's all very much appreciated. And remember, if you want access to more episodes, then you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Nordic True Crime, where you can get access to extra episodes for as little as $5 per month. Now, on to this week's episode. Late one evening, on the 30th of November, 1998, two men were walking alongside the canal in the central area of Stockholm. Suddenly, they see something floating in the water, wedged in between two boats on the quayside. At first, they didn't realize exactly what it was they were looking at, but as they moved closer to the mysterious object, it dawned on them. It was in fact a human body, or at least part of a human body. This is Nordic True Crime. On arrival at the crime scene, the police quickly established that it was a human torso that the two men had found. And the pathologist could tell that it was the torso of a male who was between 60 to 80 years old. That was a bit of an odd revelation in itself, because even though this type of murder was rare, people who were both murdered and dismembered were usually much younger than that of the elderly man found in the canal. The investigation into identifying the unknown man was underway, but only two days later, yet another discovery was made. Something was found floating in the water not far from where the torso was originally found. It turns out to be an intestinal package, and it was from the same body as that of the torso. Police divers began searching the canal for more body parts, 
and just over a week after the original discovery, the remaining body parts were found at the bottom of the canal. In total, the body had been cut up into 14 different parts, and prior to that, the man had endured a brutal beating. As well as the beating, he had deep, coarse cuts to his neck and throat, more than likely caused by a knife. His genitals had also been severed, and there were injuries to his anus, which had been inflicted whilst the man was still alive. The man's head was also strangely shaped. It appeared to have been subjected to extreme heat, and therefore had shrunken and had made the man's grey hair go blonde. The police start by checking the man's fingerprints, but they fail to find a match. It is now two weeks since they found him, and they still have no clue as to who he may be. They decide to go public and publish a picture of the man's face in the media. But since his head was so badly damaged, they made a digital estimation of what he might have looked like prior to his murder. It doesn't take long before a man makes a call to the police, claiming that the picture looks like his father. His father, who had gone missing, 81-year-old Gabriel Kish. Both he and his son used the same dentist, so after comparing dental records, the police could finally confirm that it was in fact the body of Gabriel Kish found in the canal in Stockholm. Gabriel was a pensioner that lived in a suburb of Stockholm. He lived a fairly ordinary life and wasn't involved in any shady or criminal-like going-ons as far as the police could tell. He liked to spend his spare time in his allotment, growing his vegetables. The police forced their way into Gabriel's apartment, but when inside, they couldn't see anything out of the ordinary. It looked like a normal, tidy, well-kept, average apartment, and there was no sign of any kind of struggle. That was, until they reached the bathroom. It was very clean. Extremely clean.
when they removed the plug from the drain and checked underneath the bathtub. They couldn't even find a single hair, which was highly unusual. They even called in a plumbing expert who used a fiber optic cable to check as far down into the pipes as possible. But it was completely spotless. According to the expert, he had never seen such clean pipes in his 16 years in the profession. Even the tiles and the inside of the bathtub were sparklingly clean. The detectives didn't even find a single trace of everyday bathroom substances such as soap or shampoo. There was a second room on further viewing which looked suspicious. The kitchen. They found an oven pan with a dark scorched circle in the middle. The circle roughly matched the same size of a severed head from the neck upwards as if it had been sat on top of the pan and whilst investigating further they found a human hair towards the back of the oven. Tests would later reveal that both the hair and the burnt traces on the pan matched Gabriel's DNA. Since the body had been subjected to several cuts, all of the knives in the kitchen were sent to the lab for analysis. They also turned out to be very clean. But once they had taken apart one of the handles, they were able to find a significant amount of blood which belonged to the victim. It was much larger amount of blood than would be normally found from a small accidental cut to the finger. However, they were unable to find anything that resembled the instrument that had been used during the dismemberment of the body, which was believed to have been a fine saw of some kind, much like that of a surgical saw. It wasn't until some time later that Gabriel's son remembered that he had bought his father a small saw for cutting up pork chops and other meat. The saw in question was nowhere to be found in the apartment. But the police did find brown plastic bags out on the balcony that were very similar to the ones the dismembered body parts were wrapped up in. At the same time, Gabriel's son was being questioned by the police. They soon find out 
that Gobrin's wife was also missing. Had she been murdered like her husband? Gabriel was born in Hungary, but moved to Sweden in 1975, together with his wife at the time. She would sadly pass away some time later, and Gabriel was left alone. Although he did, however, have his son, who was also living in Sweden. As the years went on, Gabriel wanted someone to help him with everyday life around the house, such as cleaning and cooking. He started to look for someone who could help him and got in contact with a woman called Maria. She lived in Romania, the neighboring country to Hungary. They started to exchange letters and Gabriel even went to Romania to see her. She really wanted to move to a western country and was willing to help Gabriel with his house. And despite being almost half his age, together they agreed for her to move to Sweden and stay with him. In order for them to live together, they had to marry but she made it clear to him that the marriage was only for paperwork purposes and not because of love. But Gabriel couldn't control the feelings he had for his young bride. On moving to her new country, she decided to go to college and get a good education. And while she was studying, Gabriel supported her financially. Their relationship wasn't the best. Gabriel was very jealous and always picked her up after school, keeping a close eye on what his wife was doing. She, on the other hand, had fits of rage and had been violent towards him on several occasions. She had a short temper, and when still living in Romania, she had been in a physical altercation with one of her co-workers, and when younger, had even tried to strangle her sister. After marrying Maria, Gabriel's relationship with his son became more and more strained as he didn't approve of his father's new partner. And from then on, they only had sporadic contact with each other. But when he couldn't get a hold of his father for some time, he decided to ask Maria where he was. She didn't really give any good explanation as to Gabriel's whereabouts. 
and after several weeks of nobody hearing from him, his son's wife told Maria that they would go to the police and file a missing persons report. That very same day, Maria bought a plane ticket to Hungary and left the country. She traveled to Hungary with a very large amount of luggage, 70 kilos over the allowed limit of that specific airline. Bear in mind that Maria was in no way a wealthy person and the charge for exceeding the baggage allowance, especially by 70 kilos, was very costly. The police issued an international warrant for her arrest, but nothing happened. They didn't know where she was. One day, Gabriel's son received a phone call. It was Maria, saying that she was at the apartment, but there seemed to be some kind of trouble with the keys, because she couldn't get in. The son immediately called the police, telling them that his father's suspected murderer was standing outside his father's apartment, trying to gain entry. The police rushed to the scene where they arrested her. Maria said that she had returned to Sweden when she learned that an arrest warrant was issued for her and said that she wanted to tell her side of the story. According to her, Gabriel had planned to purchase an apartment in Hungary and had flown there in search of affordable property. He was in no way a rich man since he only had a pension to live on, so he would get so much more for his money living there than he would in Sweden. But after his departure, she heard nothing from him. So she began to get very worried and wondered what might have happened to him. So she decided to fly over to look for him herself. When asked why she didn't tell his son or any of his friends that he was missing, she claimed that she didn't say anything because his plans to purchase property in Hungary were a secret. He had only told her about them. None of Gabriel's friends or his son had indeed ever heard him talk about or even mention that he was planning to move to Hungary. This was either because he didn't want to reveal his plans or because it just simply wasn't true. During questioning, Maria revealed that Gabriel was planning to buy the apartment in the same town in Hungary where her ex-husband lived. 
that was a huge red flag for the police, who considered it to be very strange that a jealous man like Gabriel would willingly live in the same town as his wife's ex-husband. And when it became clear that Maria never contacted the police in Hungary to ask for help to find her missing husband, but instead visited her ex-husband and her daughter, the Swedish police contacted their Hungarian colleagues and asked if they would question the ex-husband. When they searched his house, they found a large amount of furniture and other items from Gabriel's apartment, as well as items belonging to his ex-wife, which explained why Maria's baggage was 70 kilos overweight. When asked about the hair found in the oven, she said that she was cutting his hair one day and he was complaining that it was too cold in the apartment. So they had turned the oven on and opened the door to spread the heat around the room. And it was then that his hair must have blown into the oven. The oven pan with her husband's scorched remains and DNA all over it. Well, that she had no explanation for. But what was the reason behind dumping the body in the central part of Stockholm instead of maybe on the outskirts of the city or somewhere it would stand a much better chance of never being discovered? It turned out that Maria wasn't good at finding her way around the city of Stockholm as she rarely walked about town on her own. That is more than likely the reason why her husband's dismembered body was found right outside the building where she went to school. In fact, the view from the building looked exactly over the spot where Gabriel was found. A witness also came forward claiming that he had seen a woman dumping plastic bags in the water at the same spot as the torso was found. Maria was arrested for Gabriel's murder and the police carried on with their investigation, searching for clues to the motive behind the brutal killing. It was soon discovered that the couple had been regularly arguing about money. For instance, Gabriel had been angry with Maria because she had been making expensive long-distance phone calls to her daughter in Romania. And just a short while before Gabriel went missing, Maria had transferred 
just over 3,000 Swedish crowns, around 250 British pounds, to her daughter's bank account. Considering that Gabriel's whole pension each month was around 7,000 Swedish crowns, around 600 British pounds, then 3,000 was a significant amount of money. The detectives believed that Gabriel had found out about the transaction, despite Maria trying to keep it from him, and that this led to a big argument which ended with Gabriel's murder. They also believed that Maria had tried to gain access to Gabriel's savings, which were around 230,000 Swedish crowns. But why had she put his severed head in the oven? One possible explanation to this was due to an incident that had occurred sometime earlier. Gabriel and Maria had invited their friends from the neighboring allotment over for dinner. Maria had made a roast, but she had overcooked it, burning it, much to the displeasure of Gabriel. He had given her a huge telling off for burning the meal in front of their guests. This, in combination with Maria's previously documented rage problems, could be an explanation as to why she decided to burn her husband's head in the oven. Maria, however, always denied having anything to do with her husband's death and claimed that she was innocent. The trial began in August of 1999. The case was only built on circumstantial evidence, as there were no actual physical proof tying Maria to the crime. However, the case against her was considered to be pretty solid. To the surprise of everyone, she was found not guilty by the court. Since the pathologist had stated in his initial investigation that the dismemberment, in his opinion, had been performed by someone with experience, like a surgeon, pathologist or hunter, the court believed that Maria couldn't possibly have done it. This was also during a period when a female slayer-type murder was almost unheard of, and there had never been one in Sweden in modern times. The court decided to look at each circumstance individually and not the overall picture, which resulted in them finding plausible explanation for each claim 
Against Maria. In January of 2000, the verdict was appealed by the prosecutor. The police believed that Gabriel was dismembered in the bathtub and the extremely clean bathroom backs up this belief. New witnesses were called in and testified that the bathroom window in the couple's apartment had been wide open for days before Gabriel was reported missing, which was thought to be very strange since it was very cold outside at the time. And the neighbor remembered a very strong smell of air freshener coming from the apartment every time Maria opened the door. Maria had previously told the police that Gabriel was a really nice and generous man, but she had also said to a teacher at the school that he was really tight with his money and a very jealous man who tried to control her. Proof of the pathologist's claim that the dismemberment had been performed by someone with experience was presented in court. Witnesses from Romania were called in to testify that back in the days it was quite common to buy whole slaughtered animals in markets and then cut them up at home. And Maria used to live close to one of these markets and shop there, proving that she was accustomed to dismembering animals. And in March 2000, the verdict was in. Guilty. Maria was sentenced to life in prison and was transferred to a prison in Romania where she will serve her time. She has always claimed her innocence, even to this day. Today, Gabriel's friends and family are still left with the same questions. Why? Why was their loved one put through such brutal pain and torture before losing his life? Hi, we're the Grave Girls from Grave Girls Podcast. I'm your host, Hawthorne. And I'm Amaryllis. Every week we watch a different horror film, and I find a scary story that goes with it that will definitely leave you shaking in your boots. And if you aren't wearing boots, my true crime case and murder 
will scare the pants off you. And then you'll just be naked, and that's just that's just a fun time. So listen to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to check out our website at grave-girls.com. We love you all in case we die. Bye! Hi, true crime fans. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all.